David Birch. He's the author of the new book, The Currency Cold War, and an acclaimed advisor on digital financial services. That's his identity. But how does one demystify the subject of identity in general? Birch is frank, opinionated, refreshingly genuine, and today on Dave and Dom Demystify, he tackles the subject of identity quite like no one else can. From the studios of NMD Plus in the UK and US comes the Dave and Dom Demystify show. And Dom Demystify Show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Dom Mystery. Demystify. Welcome everybody to the Dave and Dom Demystify Show. And this week we want to demystify identity and who better to ask onto the show and to talk about identity than the person I regard as the oracle of identity, <laughs> David Birch. You David. are much too kind, but thank you for that generous introduction. Let's start, David. I mean, I'm not just being kind. I think you're widely regarded as one of the world's leading experts on identity with the depth of stuff that you've done. What I'd like to start with really is to find out about how do you get to this point what drove you into this space? And it's more than identity, I know, because you've got a deep yeah. history in data as well. I was one of the founders of Consult Hyperion, which is a specialist electronic transactions consultancy. And over the years, we worked for, oh, well, we still do work for Visa, MasterCard, Amex, Discover, the Bank of England, some of the big clearing banks. But in the late 80s, early 90s, we were doing a lot of work on smart cards leading up to chip and pin, the first electronic cash cards, and the first mobile payments as well, actually. And the more time I spent in that space, the more I began to think, I mean, I flatter myself, I probably did think of it about five minutes before everybody else, was that a lot of the problems we were facing weren't really payments problems, they were actually identity problems. And if we could sort out the identity side of things, then actually a lot of the payments headaches went away. And so that sort of led me into thinking about identity more seriously. And then, of course, once you start thinking about identity and then that starts taking you into things like privacy and control and stuff like that, I started to think that perhaps we should have a different view of it. In other words, we should start trying to construct a view of digital identity made for the modern world and in the kind of interconnected world that we live in. And we should stop trying to kind of make electronic simulations of the identities that we already had, like passports and driving licenses and things like that. And it turned out that was a moderately successful way of thinking. I wrote a few pieces about it. I ended up writing a book about it, which was reasonably well received. For anyone listening and that has any interest in identity, it's well worth reading your papers because the way that you break it down into the different aspects of identity is really clear and simple. These were really consumable. So well done. Thank you. Once I'd written the book and started work on a variety of projects in different places, I sort of got very hooked on it. And so up until, you know, a couple of years ago, I was very focused on identity and I had a lot of ideas. I mean, as did other people for how to bring this new kind of identity to the mass market. 
then I got a bit fed up with banging my head against the wall at various banks. I won't name any names, but, uh, you know, you could see the fraud problems getting worse, the identity problems getting worse. And it's the sort of thing that requires some form of coordination. That didn't really happen. I got a bit fed up with it. Because the payments world had taken an interesting twist with people talking about digital currency. And of course, a lot of the stuff I knew about from the old days about electronic cash had suddenly become relevant again. I started to focus on that. And I just published a book called The Currency Cold War about digital currency. Then, of course, just as that comes out, the pandemic really begins to bite because of stuff that I've not really thought too much about before. I mean, I'm not really an expert on health or travel or anything like that. The whole issue of identity and privacy comes back, but in a really new and interesting way, which is about the relationship between individual and group privacy and the trade-offs and that kind of thing. And so I just got very fascinated by it. Consult Hyperion has been advising down in Australia, in Canada, in America. It's really a very interesting area again. And I'm writing a new book, of course. You knew I was going to say that uh, about it. So, yeah. I think I had some original ideas. I got a bit frustrated when, you know, nothing much was happening. But now, yeah, the whole identity space is just really bubbling again. And it's fascinating. So in terms of the identity stuff, you work a lot with banks and stuff. But have you been consulted by the government? Personally, I think we end up with like multiple IDs here in the UK, a driving license number and an NI number and all sorts of numbers. But why don't we have one IDs to make our journeys, at least with the government, easier? And, and it seems like other countries like India, especially, but then, you know, even African countries, like we spoke to the head of payments infrastructure in Ghana, and they've learned off the Indians and put in not only an identity framework, but a payments framework as well, which seems to be well in advance of what we can do here. The idea that we should do something about identity you know, obviously, yes, of course we should. And the fact that years after the internet was invented, still nobody knows who anybody is. And you have all sorts of frauds and scams going on. I mean, clearly, that's problematic. I'm not convinced that having a single identity is the way out of this. I think having a single identity, which is used for everything, has its dangers, not simply because of the cases where And I'm sure you're familiar with the Indian example, you know, where occasionally it fails and then all of a sudden people can't get any food or subsidies. So the idea of having an identity is kind of unappealing. The idea of having kind of more sector specific identities, you know, having a sort of financial services identity, a hobby identity, you know, these kind of things. And then having the choice to link them together yourself, I think is probably a better way to go. But when it comes to the sort of general underlying point you're making, yeah, I mean, I was on the home office appallingly mislabeled advisory group. I mean, why it was called an advisory group, I've got no (laughs) idea, since they never paid the slightest attention to anything we ever said about it. But the thing was, I mean, people have forgotten all of this now, of course, and you're too young to remember, but long before the Blair government's decision to introduce a national identity card, the preceding Conservative administration had had a consultation about it which I responded to along with colleagues. And basically what I said then was what I still think now, which is we don't want a national identity scheme. What we want is a national entitlement scheme, which is very different. When I connect to some service provider to get some, you know, if it's the government or anybody else, what's crucial is am I entitled to do what I want to do? Am I entitled to log into this bank? Am I entitled to walk through this door? 
am I entitled to get this money? Who I am is the wrong question. And we tend to ask who you are. Whereas, of course, with modern technology, you can carry those entitlements with you. Now, what's happened recently, you've got a whole bunch of things coming together we didn't have before. One level, you've got an interesting vector for standardization because you've got W3C DID, whether you agree with self-sovereign identity or not. I mean, I'm personally quite sceptical about it. But nonetheless, if it provides some standards, that's great. You've got W3C verifiable credentials, which I personally think is a really great hope for moving forward. So now you've got some sort of standardization vehicles we can use to carry these entitlements around. People now begin to think more in terms of claims and proofs and credentials and much less in terms of identity, which I think is a very sort of positive thing. And of course, you've got immediate use cases, which we didn't have before. I'll give you the obvious one which is how do you prove that you have been vaccinated for COVID so you can go into a pub or something without having to give away your identity? Because every time you're asked to prove your identity, that's another place where your identity can be stolen from and compromised. And anyway, it's none of their damn business. Yes, so things have changed. So now we have some vehicles that we didn't have before. We've got technology which we didn't have before because now we've got mobile phones that have secure elements, trusted execution environments that we can use for these kind of things. So I'm optimistic again. I got a bit fed up with it a few years ago. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think of these other countries then like Ghana and, you know, India especially? What interests me about India is the India stack. So I understand all the reasons why Adhar was chosen and you can't argue that it hasn't been successful in the terms that it's set. It's an astonishing achievement to get everybody registered. But it's not right for us. It's a very specific solution to some very specific problems. And I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable with the idea that every time I own up to the council to complain about the bins, or I go to the leisure centre, or I open a bank account, I have to give the same ID number that can be tracked and traced. I'm not comfortable with that. But the India stack is something different. And I think that's been astonishingly successful. If you look at the activity that sits on top of UPI, the payments interface, it's amazing. And in hindsight, if we look back in the UK, we should have done something about identity as part of the open banking effort. And we ended up with having to build new directories and all this kind of thing, consent management. But in particular, we thought, incorrectly as it turned out, but it was a perfectly sound thing to say at the time, we thought that giving flexibility over the APIs would lead to sort of innovation and competition and whatever. But it just turned out to be a bit of a mess. And you had to have third parties putting layers on top of the APIs so that apps could actually access any of these APIs. Because there should have been a single standard. Don't you think there's two separate problems there, Damash? Problem one is there's a single standard, but with lots of different interpretations. So with bank A, I'm Birch, D. With bank B, I'm D.Birch. With bank C, I'm David, one field, Birch, another field. And the interpretations vary. And also, actually, I have to say the implementation up until now has been quite appalling. I mean, I haven't got it in front of me now, but I think the service levels in December were 98.5% or something. That's appalling. Basically, one in 50 API calls is failing still at the moment because the gateways are down or, you know, whatever. Maybe we would have been better to have had a more prescriptive single API that everybody could start building on, all the banks could be forced to. 
So when we used to do analysis for our clients, and now, of course, I'm going back four or five years, we used to have this little two by two matrix, of course, because we're consultants. It's an EU standard. We have no choice. We had our little two by two matrix of basically payment and non-payment APIs and mandatory and non-mandatory APIs. And working through this in you know, the banking and payments environment, it was very clear that the real margin, the real value added margin was going to come from the non-payment, non-mandatory APIs, the premium APIs that were nothing to do with payments. The premium APIs, which are this person has an account, this person's over 18, this person has made some transactions in the last month. And then you see companies who are building some amazing businesses on going through the AISP interfaces and you know assess whether people can pay back loans, for example. And of course, it's turned out that in retrospect, you don't actually need that much of that data. I'm a small business. If you can get access to my bank account and just have a look at the last two or three months, you don't need giant supercomputers to work out that most SMEs are pretty inefficient users of finance and to suggest alternatives. So I think there are two separate problems. So one is, in retrospect, I think we probably should have been a bit more prescriptive on the APIs. So on the premium APIs, of which digital identity is an obvious case, maybe we could have worked harder to drive that into the marketplace. I mean, I've had a Barclays account for God knows how many years. I won't even say in front of you how many years I've had an account at Barclays. And if I go to open an account at another bank, that counts for nothing. I mean, it's just like, why can't I use my Barclays login to log into Santander and open an account at Santander? It would save everybody time and money. We can look around the world and we can see the positives like in India. I'm very interested in frameworks and you look at what's going on in places like Australia and New Zealand and Canada with this idea of identity framework. So you have these interoperable identities working with this framework. And that stuff's, you know, what the Canadians have been doing with their banks is quite interesting as well. In the US, you've got the plaids and the yodelers and people like this doing some great stuff, although not under sort of mandatory APIs. But I probably sound old and grumpy, but the truth <laughs> is there are opportunities opening up. My focus at the moment is in the prop tech side of things. And I see lots of companies, you know, taking open banking data, turning into renters' credit history, turning deposits into insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So there's been a fair amount of innovation outside of banking, I think, right? But they all suffer very greatly from the lack of an identity infrastructure. Exactly. One of the other things I'm working on is the whole idea of identity for a property has exactly the same problems as a person, right? I don't know anything about property and stuff like that. I mean, I've only got one house, so I'm quite unusual amongst all of you guys. But Your you house has a UPRN number from land registry, possibly, if it was bought in the last 10 years or so. It might have some land registry data. It'll have a council ID. It has several different IDs for different purposes. Yeah, but the truth is, you can go and change your name to Dave Perch by Depot, then sell my house. In 2021, that seems a bit odd. So there's a ways to go on all of this stuff. One of the ideas that's coming out in that space is the use of potentially like a blockchain, right? There is an ID that binds all the other IDs together so that you can just come to this token that says, oh, I haven't got a UPRN number. It's too old a property or it's a brand new property. It hasn't been assigned one yet, but I have got a council ID for it or I haven't got a council ID. I've got the land registry deeds number, etc. Yeah. Well, look, you don't need a blockchain for that. Look, I won't say all of the blockchain ideas I hear are stupid. I mean, I would say most of them are stupid. I wouldn't <laughs> say all of them are stupid. Is it possible that some form of shared ledger 
almost certainly not a blockchain, could be deployed to make some of these things more efficient? I'd say the answer to that is probably yes. And the reason I say that is because I'm interested in the transparency aspects of it rather than the security aspects of it. Um, So I'd be prepared to believe that. But a lot of the ideas that I get pitched are just, let's take something that would take five minutes to build in MySQL, and for no reason I can see, put it onto a Chinese blockchain, which takes 20 minutes to register a change of state. I mean, I don't see where we're going with that. Cool. So cast your eye out, and I know you probably have already. What is going to be like in five years' time or maybe 10 years' time? Where do you think we might have got to in terms of progress? I just wrote a piece for Forbes yesterday, actually, saying when I was looking at my what's going to happen in 2021 thesis, I mean, everybody has to write these kind of things. But I read a lot of them and embedded finance was pretty high. And I agree. You know, the fact that most people will be accessing most financial services, not through a financial services interface, but through some other getting something done interface. I mean, I buy them. I'm a big embedded finance fan. But I was saying to somebody the other day, you know, embedded finance doesn't get me out of the house. It's all very well that I can use a fantastic app to pay for something in a restaurant. I can't get into the restaurant. So I'm just wondering if embedded health is actually the... And I was thinking about, we were talking yesterday about booking some tickets, see Jack D actually. And I can imagine a situation where you use your theatre app to book some tickets to see something, but you can't book them unless you send a test certificate or, you know, a vaccination record or something like that as part of the transaction. So all of a sudden, where people like me used to think it was going to be the government or the bank that would give you this digital identity. I mean, I'm starting to wonder now if maybe it won't come from another direction. I mean, maybe in five years time, we'll be using digital identity all the time in a kind of embedded way, the same as we do with finance. But actually, it will be because of IATA or the NHS or Ambassador Theatre Group or something and not because of the government. And so I'm kind of thinking about that at the moment. On a day-to-day basis, my real focus right now actually is identity in the Internet of Things. I've joined a company in that space as chairman. I've written quite a few things about, I used to have this hashtag, I mean, I can't resist the fun of it, but ID for the Internet of Things, which is hashtag idiot, which I was putting on it. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but I see a lot of pitches, you know, people draw on the whiteboard and they draw, okay, so my car will purchase this parking space for half an hour, your garage will open it. And all of this stuff works if you're just drawing clouds on a whiteboard. But if you go down one level of the technology, there's nothing there. How does your parking space know that it's my car when I arrive? So actually, I've got a little sneaking thing that one of the big changes over the next five years is actually identity not for people and bots. And actually, the thing I'm doing right after this is I'm recording a piece for some other thing I'm doing with a client, which is about the identity of AIs and bots, particularly in the financial services space. If you're going to have bots executing transactions for you, how do they get their identities? How do they establish their reputations and this kind of thing? So if you wanted a slightly out of left field answer, I would say the next three to five years is probably about the identities of not people. I absolutely agree with you. There are lots of things that need identities that aren't people. And maybe it will shift to look at that. So one of the questions I've got is around custodians of privacy. So I'm really interested in how Apple's gone for the secure space. You know, they're doing more and more to kind of lock down your identity. 
I don't know whether it's true or not, but it feels like they're looking to kind of protect your identity more and more. Going to sort of looking three to five years out, I wonder if they have a long-term view, which is, you know, to your point around COVID passports and things, if it's Apple who's doing the passport and they've got the infrastructure in place, then that becomes quite powerful for them. Do you see big tech as suddenly really interested in identity? Four or five years ago, I wrote a thing about how in the three to five year time frame, privacy would become part of the upfront customer proposition. It wouldn't be a back office hygiene factor. I'm only telling you this because I was right. Of course, I'm not going to tell you the things. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the things I wrote that was wrong. Well, I can imagine you and Rory Sutherland kind of agreeing over that. But he's one of the people I greatly admire for his original thinking. But this point about privacy Instead of being this sort of back office tick box, I thought that actually it would happen more aggressively than it has, but it is inexorably happening. In fact, I think yesterday, didn't Google veto the W3C privacy stuff, which has opened up a new round of this kind of thing? So on the one hand, you can say, well, this is self-serving, Machiavellian, despicable, Silicon Valley, underhand, backsnapping subterfuge, because Apple don't make money out of who you are. I mean, they make money by selling you $1,200 phones. Google make money out of the clicks. Of course, Apple are going to be interested in getting you to use their stuff to protect your privacy because their revenue streams don't depend on it. Conversely, Google have a great interest in getting you, but they will have to do this in a more privacy-enhanced way from now on as well, which I think digital identity can contribute to. I think your intuition about that is right. It is turning into an actual competitive position. And I doubt I'm a typical consumer in this respect. Like I go to sign up for the New York Times because I want to read some articles on the New York Times. When I see that sign up with Apple button, I hit it every time. Every time. Apple gives everybody a different email address so they can't cross track you. Exactly. So I don't know whether they thought it, but when you look at banks and how we don't sort of switch accounts. There's something about our primary bank account, which I think our reptilian brain kind of trusts the bank to such a degree that we don't readily move banks. I just sort of wonder if people like Apple have sort of looked at that and go, well, actually, if you can build that level of trust at that kind of real base layer of the brain, then you're off to the races. If you're an Apple household or an Android household, the switching costs are already enormous. Well, exactly. Switch out of Apple. I'd have to go around and log into everything again, copy all my music and move it. I mean, what I would say about the potential there, though, is, you know, we probably haven't yet seen the category emerge yet. Like, for example, in the early days of, you know, MySpace or something, you could sort of see the category. You didn't know that it was going to be Facebook or, but you could see a category emerging. I don't feel we've seen the identity management. And I talk to a lot of people, obviously, who think this idea, well, actually, Tim Berners-Lee is going down with this pods idea that, you know, you give people their personal data to manage and they look after it. But that just doesn't quite seem right to me. I'm not sure about that. So I'm sort of wondering if there's something around the corner somewhere which is going to be the place. Maybe it won't be banks. I used to think it was banks that would look after your identity for you for the reason you outlined which is that we all know banks are horrible and despicable and useless and blah, blah, blah. But by and large, they don't actually lose your data. I agree. But imagine you're Tim Cook going, well, look, we're not doing something for next year. We're doing something for 15 years hence. 
And to do that, this is the area that we kind of really need to double down on. But it probably isn't happening, but it kind yeah, of feels people, like... People like Apple and Google and Facebook, if they are looking long-term at this, I have no idea whether they are or not. But if I was them, certainly I'd be thinking, why on earth would we want to get into that business? Let banks deal with the heavily regulated utility business of moving money around at zero margin. We'll take over the front end. It's like when I was growing up, people don't remember this sort of thing nowadays, but when I was growing up in Swindon, by the way, there used to be an electricity board shop where you would go to to buy fridges and things. And there was a gas board shop that you'd go to. Like, you know, this is ridiculous. If I was Tim Cook, I would be lobbying the appropriate regulators to make sure that Citibank end up as the gas board and I'm selling the appliances. Why would I want to be a bank? Being a bank means being scrutinised and constrained. I don't want to do that. I agree with you. I think if I was Tim Cook, I don't care about the money side of things. I care about the identity and privacy side of things because you can then control so much more. And to your point, I think the more you embed people into your ecosystem, the more difficult it comes to move. Don't you think there's a liability issue there, David? Again, I'm not yeah. sure if Apple want that. What Apple want is to authenticate you. I'll give you some examples. Suppose, I mean, we'll use the example of Pornhub because it's in the news because they've been cut off AVs from MasterCard, right? So they need to know that you're over 18 or 21 or whatever it is to access the service. <laughs> or Ladbrokes, they need to know that you're over whatever it is. Or, you know, I want to go and buy some glue. I have to be 30 or something. And I don't even know. I want to buy a knife. <laughs> you have to be 12 or something. I don't know what the rules are, but there are rules, right? Yeah, yeah, there are rules. Definitely. So I go and do something. And then it turns out, actually, I wasn't 18 or 21 or 36. And I get sued for a billion dollars by the district court in Waco, East Texas, yeah. for letting somebody access that. I don't think Apple want that. The people who actually know whether I'm over 18 or not, i.e. the bank, are surely the people that are best placed to turn that into a financial service with appropriate insurance and underwriting and all this sort of thing. I sort of see Google and Apple in a like, different space. I can see them maybe extending beyond authentication into providing the authorization frameworks, you know, using W3CVC or stuff like that. But whether they would actually attest to anything inside those credentials, I'm not sure. I think that might be better left to the specialists. Yeah, and I knew this was going to be a deeply fascinating conversation. All of it was relevant, and I certainly think you've helped clear some of the misnomers around kind of ID. And I definitely would recommend people read your papers. It does break down the problem broader than what most people take it for, right? So I really appreciate you coming on to the show and really value the work that you're doing. It's fantastic. It was really fun talking to you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. No problem. Talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of NMD Plus, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.